So we're in the second week of Advent, and um, Advent is this term that means arrival. It looks back to Jesus' first coming, but it looks forward to his second arrival, where he will come back again. And uh, last week, John Parker did a great job of sort of delving into the history of Advent a little bit, and we talked a little bit about how the history of the Advent wreath and the Advent candles goes back, you know, about 140 years back to a Lutheran pastor who worked with these inner city um, children. And the way that we got the Advent wreath and these candles was that they had really short attention spans. And he's like, all right, what do I do in order to get the, keep their attention? And so he developed this Advent wreath with 19 little candles for each of the uh, in-between in days of Advent, and then uh, five candles, four white ones and one red one um, for the Sundays leading up to Christmas, and then the red one for Christmas Day. By the way, I've always thought that an Advent wreath with like real candles on it is extremely dangerous, especially in a place like the DeSoto Theater, um, much less in like the middle of the 1800s in Germany. You know what I mean? But hey, whatever. I guess he was willing to do whatever it took for the gospel. So, all right. So the first um, candle, uh, the first Sunday of Advent, the theme of that Sunday is hope. And uh, so last week we looked at some passages of the scripture that talk about our hope and we defined hope as um, something that is not only an optimistic uh, anticipation, but it's also a confident expectation. And so the idea of hope being an optimistic anticipation is something that most of us as Western Americans are familiar with. Yeah, I, you know, I hope that the Chargers do well. I hope Georgia wins its bowl game, whatever. We think about this optimistic uh, sort of emotion. But in Scripture, hope is actually really much, much more than that. It's also a confident expectation that something is going to come to pass. The second Sunday of Advent is actually peace, and so that's the theme that we've been talking about today, so we'll delve into that in just a few minutes, and then love and joy are the remaining themes of, uh, of the Advent Sundays. So uh, without further ado, I'm going to take a moment, I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump in. Father, thank you for this day. Um, I thank you for a season where we do get to remember, and we do get to think about your son entering into the world as a child, as a baby, as a human being, suffering headaches and stomach aches and sickness um, <clears throat> and rejection and frustration so that he can identify with us in our humanity. Um, and Father, I thank you even that this season also is a reminder of Jesus' coming arrival where all will be made right, uh, where everything that is wrong in the world will be restored uh, where broken things will be healed and crooked things will be made straight. And so, Father, we, we even look towards Jesus' second coming uh, as a hopeful anticipation of the world being made right. And so, Father, um, I pray this morning that you would um, enable us to have an encounter with you, our living God, where our thoughts might be changed, but our hearts might be changed as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I think they're binaries. I, I don't think you can contemplate the one without the other. Yes, isn't that the, the giant question? Uh, depends. Credo che bisognerebbe prima chiedersi se sia possibile la pace dentro me stessi. Yes, peace on earth. If there's unity in all of us. Ik ben bang van niet. Het zit in de aard van de mens om oorlog te maken. Ik ben bang van niet. Het zit in de aard van de mens om oorlog te maken. Ja. 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 Ik heb het gevoel dat als er een man is, er geen vrede is. Ik 
Φυσικά και είναι εφικτή. Απλώ πρέπει να κατανοήσει πρώτα την αγάπη. Θεωρητικά κανένα βαθμό, αλλά πρακτικά μου φαίνεται ότι δεν είναι. As long as people they can get together, they do peace and harmony. Yes, we can be. 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 Yes, I don't think so. Too many egos, too many people, too many weapons. If love is equally distributed to all of the world, peace can be shared. If there's peace, you're preparing for war. And if there's war, you're fighting for peace. Well, isn't that cool? Say yes. I'm not going to agree. That's actually a little advertisement from National Geographic, but it's a really interesting question. Uh, the question itself is, you know, is peace on earth possible? Um, I don't know if you noticed, but um, there were three people from uh, the former Soviet Union, and they all said no. And watching that made me think, like, hmm, I wonder to what degree people's answer to that question might be determined to some degree on the culture that they come from and what that culture has experienced historically. Obviously, you know, Russia has experienced lots of suffering, probably anywhere from 60 million to 100 million deaths during the 20th century at the hands of communism and, and Stalin. And so it's no wonder that some of those people might answer no to that question, but it is still a good question. And, and really, I would even drive that question home to those of us in this room and say, do we think that peace is possible? One of the great promises of Scripture, one of the great promises of Christianity, beginning in Genesis and really going all the way through Scripture to Revelation is that peace, both personal, interpersonal, uh, interpersonal peace, but also global peace, is actually possible through Christ. Advent actually reintroduces this idea of peace, particularly in the person of Jesus. And so it's not just this general idea. There's not just this general peace that comes due to sort of warm, fuzzy feelings, but rather it finds its origin in Jesus. And Ryan uh, read some of those verses from Isaiah this morning that pointed to Jesus as the reason for that peace. I'm going to jump into the preceding verses. He read um, Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 6. I'm going to read Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, and we'll cover a lot of that chapter. But let's look at Isaiah 9 really quickly. We've got it up here on the screen. But just to set this, the, the sort of the picture really quickly, or to give you the context of Isaiah chapter 9, the promised land, this land that God led Moses and Joshua and the children of Israel to and then gave them, this promised land has actually, by this point in time that Isaiah is writing, has really been fractured into two different countries. There's ultimately, there's Israel and uh, there is Judah. And what's happening is that not only have those two countries been at odds with one another, but also the Babylonians are on the rise, and the Assyrians are the dominating political sort of force at the time. And so what's happening is the people of Israel and the people of Judah are filled with anxiety. 
there's this real mood of doom and gloom as they see that this promised land has been fragmented. They see the Assyrians marching towards them. They know the Babylonians are rising in power. And you can just imagine how anxious this little, uh, this little world of Israel and Judah would be. And into this anxiety and into this gloom and doom, God speaks through Isaiah and gives the people a promise. Beginning in verse 1. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You've enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as a people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so the question for me anyway, as I read this passage of Scripture and look at throughout Scripture at these themes of peace, is what is it? What is peace? And how is Jesus the key? And I'll just go ahead and tell you that um, in thinking about this topic of peace, it really should be a book. And uh, trying to squeeze this into a sermon is going to do dis, uh, a, a little bit of a, a disservice to this idea, but I'm going to do my best. And so here's my little functional definition of peace. Peace is a word describing an emotional state where our hearts are at rest. And so peace is this, um, this, this emotion where our hearts are able to rest, we're able to be at ease. But more importantly, it's a concept describing a world where all that is wrong is ultimately made right. So let's jump really quickly into the first half of that definition. Peace is an emotional state where our hearts are actually at rest. Now, I mentioned a little while ago that from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible talks about peace over and over and over again. The writer of Proverbs extols the value of a heart that is at rest, a heart at peace, as opposed to one that knows discontent and anxiety. Jesus describes peace as a state where our hearts are not troubled. Let your hearts not be troubled. Paul reminds us that this peace that we experience, this internal peace, this emotion of peace, is actually a gift that comes from God. These offers of peace are a welcome gift in our anxiety-riddled culture, wouldn't you say? Let me, let me illustrate that point. In 2015, so now almost four years ago, 40 million Americans were treated for anxiety at the cost of $42 billion. So four years ago, 40 million Americans treated for anxiety at a cost of $42 billion. When you divide those numbers out, 20% of Caucasians, Anglos, over the age of 18 uh, are taking anti-anxiety medicine today. Women, interestingly enough, are two times as likely as men to take medication for anxiety. In 2018, so the numbers aren't all in yet, but according to a new poll by the American Psychiatric Association, uh, there's been a 40% rise since last year in people say, that say they struggle with anxiety. And so almost certainly anxiety is rising not just a little bit, 
but a lot. It's probably rising massively in our culture. And people who respond to these anxiety questionnaires and polls find that uh, most of the people are anxious about the following things, keeping themselves and their families safe. I think we can identify with that. Uh, People are anxious about their health, and people are anxious about paying their bills and their expenses. Now, we don't have time to do it, but it would be so interesting to delve into this topic and to try to figure out how much of this is contextual, how much of this is biological, how much of this is the product of um, you know, digital social media, you know, what are the causes for all these things. Suffice it to say, regardless of those things, anxiety is on the rise. Uh, there's a man named Scott Stossel. He's, Stossel. He's the nephew of John Stossel. Some of you guys are familiar with John Stossel, who's been on TV for quite a while. Uh, I wish I could do a John Stossel impression, but I won't. But uh, his, uh, his nephew, Scott, is a Harvard grad, so he's a, you know, clearly a super sharp guy. He's the editor of The Atlantic, and uh, he wrote a book called My Age of Anxiety. Uh, in The Atlantic, he published a little section of it, and in it, um, he shares openly about his lifelong struggle and his lifelong attempt to deal with the anguish of anxiety. He says, from a very early age, and I'll begin reading the quote now, he, he says that he has been a twitchy bundle of phobias, fears, and neuroses. He goes on to write, even when not actively afflicted by acute episodes of anxiety, I'm buffeted by worry. Here's what I've tried to deal with my anxiety. Individual psychotherapy, three decades of it, family therapy, group therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, rational emotive behavioral therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, hypnosis, meditation, role-playing, uh, interceptive exposure therapy, in vivo exposure therapy, self-help workbooks, massage therapy, prayer, acupuncture, yoga, stoic philosophy, and audio tapes I ordered off a late-night TV infomercial. <laughs> and he goes on. <laughs> and medication, lots of medication, Thorazine, Imaprene, Desipramine, Chlorodonephramine, I can't even read it, Nardil, Buspar, Prozac, Zoloft, Paxil, Wellbutrin, Effexor, Selexa, Lexapro, Cymbalta, Lovox, Trazodone, uh, Levoxyl, Enderol, Traxine, Cirax, Centrax, St. John's Wort, he really put that in there, Zolidem, Valium, Librium, Ativan, Xanax, Clonopin. Also, he goes on, beer, (laughs) wine, gin, bourbon, vodka, and scotch. And he goes on to say, here's what's worked, nothing. Wow. And so this is interesting. Again, this is a man who's sharing his story of anxiety. And as you read that, if we're people who are prone to anxiety, and the truth is, if those numbers are true, and I think they probably are, then probably a huge percentage of us in this room struggle with anxiety, then you have to be thinking right now, well, well, what in the world works, right? What actually can help me deal with my my anxiety? And very honestly, medication does often work for many people, thank goodness, right? We don't believe uh, here that that somehow medication is a bad thing, or if you simply had enough faith, you wouldn't have anxiety, because the truth is it's much more complicated than that. So medication works. Research shows that diet and exercise are actually more effective at treating anxiety and depression, and so that works. So those things are, are worth uh, talking about. Cognitive behavioral therapy definitely has been shown to work. That matters. What's interesting, however, is that, uh, is that Christianity is actually a form of cognitive behavioral therapy in the sense that what cognitive behavioral therapy recommends is that you allow what's true to determine how you feel. Does that make sense? I mean, 
it, it's kind of logical, but those of us who have struggled with anxiety or depression before know that very often it's just not that simple, right? Sometimes, for example, just personally speaking, sometimes if I'm feeling depressed, I can't just go, oh, I'm depressed. I'm not going to be depressed anymore, right? Or I'm feeling anxious. Oh, man, I, that's ridiculous. It's illogical. I'm not going to be anxious anymore. But the truth is when we allow the truth, the reality to sink in, that can actually eventually change the way that we feel. And I do think that's where Christianity comes in. So here's what Scripture has to say, just a tiny slice of what Scripture has to say about anxiety. First of all, Scripture tells us that the Spirit is actually at work in those of us who are believers, growing peace. In other words, if you're a believer, if you, if you have trusted in Christ alone for your salvation, the Bible tells us that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and what, part of what the Spirit is doing is growing peace in you. I'll read uh, verses 22 and 23 of Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's good to know, it's good to be reminded that we have an advocate who cares about our emotional state and who is working on our emotional state. Uh, There's a story that C.S. Lewis's um, wife, Joy Davidman, uh, told about uh, God desiring to give her peace. Uh, She tells the story of uh, one time they were going to be hosting a dinner party, and we've got a picture of her up here on the screen, I think, but... She was talking about hosting this dinner party, and she said, I was running around from one place to another trying to get ready for everybody, and I was preparing food, and I was preparing drinks, and I was you know, cleaning the floors, and I was doing all this stuff. And she said, every now and then I would feel this tug where I literally felt like God was trying to get my attention, but I kept kind of put, keeping him at bay because I was so stressed. I was so anxious about having these people come over, and I was in a hurry. And so she said, I was, you know, went on and was doing more and more, and I was working on this and folding these things and setting the table. And she said, in the middle of setting the table, God, she felt God come to her again and try to pull her to, uh, to himself. And again, she sort of pushed God away. And she said she went around and she went to the, to the sink and she was washing some dishes and she was furiously scrubbing things. And she said one more time, she felt God almost tapping her on the shoulder And uh, in her uh, vernacular, she said, I turned around to God and I said, what? And she said, all of a sudden, as I turned to God and actually acknowledged him, she said, I was filled with this amazing sense of peace, that what God had been longing to give me all along was the ability to rest and to be at peace. And that's the good news of Scripture. It's the good news of Galatians chapter 5, is that you have an advocate in God the Father who longs to give you peace and has given you his spirit to grow that peace within you and within me. Second thing that we see that scripture talks about in terms of a a remedy for this uh, internal anxiety that plagues us is not only knowing that the spirit is growing peace in us, but also knowing that God promises to be with us, knowing that God promises to be with us. Psalm 23 is one of the most famous verses of the Bible. Um, Verse 4 says this, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. It's a great and beautiful picture. I had a professor at Covenant Seminary named Dr. Calhoun who battled cancer on four different occasions and went through chemotherapy on four different occasions. And uh, he was giving a chapel lecture one time. And uh, he was talking about some of the struggles that he had gone through with going through chemotherapy and cancer and talking about, you know, the worry and the depression and the exhaustion and all these things. And he said, 
Uh, each time that I went to do chemotherapy, um, I would go to St. John's. And so um, Covenant Seminary is surrounded actually by four different hospitals. And St. John's is about two blocks away. And so he said, you know, when I felt well enough, I would actually walk the two blocks and go into the hospital. And he said there was this one uh, area of the hospital where you would go down an escalator and it was down in the sort of the bowels of the hospital that I would receive this treatment of chemotherapy. And he said, as I rode down the escalator, he said, there was a, a huge painting of Psalm 23. And he said, it was always a great reminder as I went to suffer that God had promised to be with me. And he said, not always, but he said, often as I read the words of Psalm 23, that I would be overcome with this feeling of, okay, that's right. I'm going to hurt. This is going to suffer. But I know that you're with me, right? And so we can have peace in knowing that God is with us. The Spirit is growing peace in us. God promises to be with us. The last thing that we see that, and this is not the only thing, but these are three things I've chosen to focus on that can bring peace is knowing that God is in charge. God is in charge. Romans 8.28 gets thrown around a ton, but I'm going to read it anyway. So Romans 8.28 says this, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those or them who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And I've said this many, many times. Romans 8 doesn't say that all things are good because clearly that's not true at all. In fact, I think it could be argued that, uh, that suffering is actually one of the most common things for human beings in life. So not all things are good, but what Romans 8 says is that they work together for good, right? We've seen that happen in our lives. But it says they work together for good for not everyone, but for those who love God and who've been called according to his purposes. And so knowing that God is in control of the events of our lives and is using them for our good and for his glory can actually give us great peace. One of the things that causes me to um, become very unpeaceful is when I get lost. Um, that's always been true, um, even as a kid. And so I don't know about you guys, but that getting lost was one of those things that just causes me to get stressed and anxious and frustrated. I don't ever experience peace when I'm lost. And it's interesting uh, because I don't know that my dad would echo this, but um, uh, my father, when he uh, was transferred from San Diego to Pensacola, Florida, he was a pilot and, uh, in the Navy. And uh, one of the first Sundays that he spent in Pensacola, he went to one of the buddies that was in his squadron and he said, hey, you know, I grew up in Pennsylvania, and I grew up at a Swedish covenant church. You've been here for a couple of years now. Do you know if there's a Swedish covenant church here? And uh, this is Pensacola, Florida, by the way, which is like thoroughly Southern Baptist, I'm sure. And the guy goes, yeah, I think there's a Swedish covenant church. And, my, and the guy gave my dad some directions. And so, you know, this is way before Google Maps. And uh, so my dad kind of followed these directions into this area of Pensacola, and it got to be, you know, right around 11 o'clock. He didn't find a Swedish Covenant church because, of course, I'm sure there's not one in Pensacola, Florida. There's probably three in the, you know, United States of America right now. And so as he, you know, looked at his watch and it was about 11 o'clock, he drove past this little white church and it was called Beach Haven Baptist Church. And so he's like, well, on the sign it said worship 11 a.m. So he ran in, you know, sort of pulled in and went inside and it was this tiny little Baptist church in Pensacola, Florida. And uh, he said, you know, when I was in there, um, I sat down and we sang hymns. And, and afterwards, um, people were, you know, very interested to come and say hey to me because I was in my, you know, Navy uniform. And he said, I met um, this uh, woman and her daughter. And uh, he said, they invited me um, over to their house for lunch afterwards. And so, of course, being a 24-year-old guy, he was like, yeah, sure. 
And uh, interestingly enough, um, that woman turned out to be my mom. And so about a year later, after um, meeting uh, in this strange way, because my dad got lost, um, he ended up marrying this young woman he met at Beach Haven Baptist Church. And then, of course, my sister and I were born. And then, of course, my children were born. And Romans 139, I mean, uh, Psalm 139 makes it very clear that all the days ordained for us were written in God's book of life before one of them came to pass. So in other words, God takes something as frustrating as getting lost, and he's actually doing something in your life with it. God takes things that are horrible and frustrating and painful And God is in the process of doing something good in your life. And in that, we can find peace, right? Thank you. Second thing we see in this uh, section or in this uh, idea of peace is that it's not, peace is not just this internal emotional state where our hearts are at rest, but it's more than that. It's also a concept describing a world where everything that is wrong is made right, where everything that is broken is restored, where everything is crooked is made straight. That's where Isaiah 9, 6 comes into to play. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The four roles of the Messiah being described here is that he's a guide, that he's a protector or defender, that he is a provider But then finally, this term, Shar Shalom, means that he is a prince of peace. And Shalom is actually a really deep, rich word. It's translated as as peace. But it's a state, again, where everything that is wrong is made right. And in that sense, Jesus is the prince of restoration. He's the prince of redemption, and he's making all things new, right? The question is, how does Jesus fulfill that? Well, one, we see that Jesus creates spiritual shalom or spiritual wholeness. I'm going to read a couple of verses from Romans chapter 5. Therefore, says Paul, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him, that is God, through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through this life? And so you have to remember that Adam and Eve were created to walk in the garden with God. The, the, the created state of human beings before the fall is that we were created not only to walk with one another in harmony, right, without emotional and relational uh, conflict, but we're also created to walk with God, right? The state, that state of spiritual intimacy was totally intended to be the norm. But when we set out on our own, we believed the lie that Satan offered, and in doing so, we actually set up God as our enemy, Here in Romans 5, Paul says that through Jesus' life and death, God is no longer our enemy, but that relationship has been restored. And so imagine that all of a sudden, enemies of God are now considered as friends of God. When I thought about this, I thought about any number of different things to illustrate this point, but um, the thing that actually came to my mind was the story of um, just my sister. And so I'm going to actually wrote this out, so I'm going to read it instead of just sort of telling you. And uh, my sister's name is Christy. She's three years older than me. And let me just tell you that this is not the whole story. This is not the entirety of who she was as a person or who she is as a person. But it illustrates this point of, uh, of treating these people who love you as an enemy. And so here's the little thing I wrote up. My sister made enemies of my parents somewhere along the way. Maybe it was seventh or eighth grade. I can't remember exactly. 
From the time that she was 13 or 14, our home devolved into a state of relational chaos. I remember quite vividly the drama and the tension of our home during those years. Christy, my sister, would battle and fight with my parents over seemingly everything. Her room was next to mine, and I could just hear through the walls constantly these battles that would go on. She'd come home late. Occasionally, she would come home after having too good of a time. She'd sneak out. She'd have parties when my parents were gone, and she would date some very unhealthy uh, people. She used to tell me, if you can't be good, be good at it. I'm pretty sure she meant it. (laughs) During this entire era, Christy treated my parents with belligerent animosity. Man, it was just so hard to experience and watch. I think she thought that at some level that they were naive at best, foolish at worst, they were prudish, and that they stood between her and the things that she deeply desired, right? And so she viewed them as enemies, I remember vividly when she went to college, my mom and dad and I all breathed a collective sigh of relief, and our home went from a perpetual state of code red to code sky blue. I literally did not get in trouble for the next three years, honestly, (laughs) because everything I did that was wrong paled in comparison so much that my parents were like, ah, whatever, you'll be fine. (laughs) During college, when Christy totaled her first car, my parents went to her aid. When she totaled her second car, of course, they showed up again. When she was involved in an assault case at school, once again, they were there. And somewhere along the way, things changed. I remember being shocked, actually, shocked, when visiting her apartment after college and looking at the mantle above her fireplace, and she had pictures of herself and my dad arm in arm. And I remember thinking, when did that happen, right? And not only that, but Uh, You know, after talking to my parents, after hardly talking to my parents all those years, she started calling home to talk to my mom almost every single day. And I think what happened was that she finally realized that my mom and dad loved her and weren't actually going anywhere and that they actually wanted what was best for her. So I think what finally turned my sister was realizing that my parents loved her and would always pursue her. And it was her experience of their love that finally created peace. Does that make sense? The spiritual shalom that we experience as believers is probably not all that different. Each of us in our unredeemed state, and some of us even after we become believers, we have a core fear that we are all alone in this world. Ryan mentioned it earlier today. And that God is not good. That he doesn't love us. Or that he only loves us when we're perfect. And as a result, he can't be trusted. And in light of those deep beliefs, we treat God as if he is an enemy, right? Just appease him, get away from him, whatever it takes. The clearest expression, however, of God's heart towards us is Jesus. Jesus came to earth to be Shar Salom, to create peace between God and between you and between me. Some of you in this room today need to hear that you can have peace with God through Jesus, that God actually wants you to come home and enter into the family to be a daughter or to be a son of God. And others of us in this room need to remember that you're already at peace with God because of Jesus, which is why in Galatians 4, Paul says when we are believers that we can call him Abba, Father, that we can come to him with boldness. And so Jesus creates this spiritual shalom 
And then finally, he creates physical shalom. Revelation 21 has this to say, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new, right? Jesus is a down payment on the renovation of reality. We talked about this a bit last week. The theological concept of restoration is that things that were created good, right? And then they endured corruption only to be restored by God. And this restoration, this idea of restoration is captured in various ways. I'm going to read a little quote from Tim Keller's book, King's Cross, where he paints a little picture of it. He says this in King's Cross, the book of Mark has given us the story of Jesus and declared that this is actually the world's true story as well. Jesus, the king, created all things in love. He has the power and the beauty to see his vision for the world through to its glorious end, to undo everything we have been able to do to harm it. To accomplish that, he had to come and die for it. Three days later, he rose again, and one day he will come back again to usher in a renewed creation. It's this deep theological truth. C.S. Lewis captures the same idea in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I've read this section before, but sometimes when something's good, you just have to read it again. So I'm going to read this little section where C.S. Lewis captures the same idea that Tim Keller just talked about. And in the context here, what you need to know in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, by the way, everything you, if, if, if the movie is in your head, take an eraser and erase that, okay, because it's not so good. And go back to the original source of the book, because I think it's better. But in the context here, what's happened is the world has fallen into sin, for want of a better term, this, this world called Narnia. And in this world call, called Narnia, there's a, a character called Aslan, who is um, a Jesus figure in the, the narrative. But there's also a white witch in the story. She's sort of the, the type of evil, and she has subjected Narnia to eternal winter. So everything's frozen constantly, and it's never Christmas as part of the theme. And into that world, there's a, a story about these four kids that come in, one of whom named Edmund is a rebel. And uh, the scene that I'm getting ready to read is his experience of Aslan coming back and renewing all things. So everything's been winter and frozen for years and years and years. And Edmund says this, Every moment the patches of green grew bigger and the patches of snow grew smaller. Every moment more and more of the trees shook off their robes of snow. Soon, wherever you looked, instead of white shapes, you saw the dark green of firs or the black, black prickly branches of bare oaks and beeches and elms. Then the mist turned from white to gold and presently cleared away altogether. Shafts of delicious sunlight struck down under the forest floor, and overhead you could see a blue sky between the treetops. Soon there were more wonderful things happening. Coming suddenly around a corner into a glade of silver birch trees, Edmund saw the ground covered in all directions with little yellow flowers, celandines. The noise of water grew louder. Presently they actually crossed a stream. Beyond it they found snowdrops growing. Only five minutes later, Edmund noticed a dozen crocuses growing around the foot of an old tree, gold and purple and white. Then came a sound even more delicious than the sound of the water. Close beside the path they were following, a bird suddenly chirped from the branch of a tree. It was answered by the chuckle of another bird a little farther off. 
And then, as if it had been a signal, there was a chattering and a chirruping in every direction. And then a moment of full song, and within five minutes, the whole wood was ringing with birds' music. And wherever Edmund's eyes turned, he saw birds alighting on branches or sailing overhead or having their little quarrels. The sky became bluer and bluer, and now there were white clouds hurrying across it from time to time. In the wide glades, there were primroses. A light breeze sprang up, which scattered drops of moisture from the swaying branches and carried cool, delicious scents against the faces of the travelers. The trees began to come fully alive. The larches and birches were covered with green, the laburnums with gold. Soon the beech trees had put forth their delicate, transparent leaves. As the travelers walked under them, the light also became green. A bee buzzed across their path. This is no thaw, said the dwarf, suddenly stopping. This is spring. What are we to do? Your winter has been destroyed, I tell you. This is Aslan's doing. It's a picture of restoration. In fact, At the beginning of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, as the children came into this world of Narnia and this world of eternal winter, they ran into these wise old beavers, and and Mrs. Beaver had this to say, and this was a, a prophecy or a poem they had learned about Aslan coming back. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. And so part of what C.S. Lewis is doing, part of what Tolkien is doing, part of what Keller is doing is they're painting a picture of this idea that God is coming, that Jesus is coming to make all things new, to undo all that is broken, all that is wrong with the world, and to make it right. So what are we to do with all this? What we really want is for the physical world to be made right. That's what we really want. And we actually do want for our spiritual worlds to be healed as well. And Advent reminds us that in Jesus, we're offered all of that and actually more. We're offered a world with no more suffering, with no more sorrow, and with no more pain. We're offered a world where we can come into God's presence, not only without fear, but boldly because of Jesus, because we're now daughters and we're sons. And in the meantime, before that happens, Advent reminds us that for those of us who are believers, that the Holy Spirit is actually growing peace in our hearts. Advent also reminds us that we can have peace because God promises to be with us in the midst of our pain, and that that same God is completely in control of every aspect of your life, and he's weaving those events of your life together for his good, for your good, and for his glory. Let's take a moment and pray. Father, I thank you that this concept, this idea of peace um, is actually something that you long for for us, uh, that you're working in us. And so, Father, I pray... um, that we would feel the weight of our anxiety, that we would feel the weight of our worry, that we would feel the weight of our depression, and that even in feeling the weight of each of those, we would remember that you long to restore us to a place of peace, where we believe that you're with us, and where we believe that you're for us, where we believe that you're making all things new, where we believe that you're taking all of the suffering and frustration 
of our lives and that you're actually powerful enough as an artist and as a poet to weave all of those things together to make something even more beautiful. And so, Father, I pray for the people of Seven Hills Fellowship. I pray for myself. I pray for all of us that we would experience um, real peace and that we would longingly look forward to the peace that is to come through Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.